Church, if you would turn to the 105th Psalm, we're going to read this together tonight. It's a, a bit of a lengthy psalm. Uh, we'll give attention to reading the Word of God tonight. Psalm 105. Hopefully you've already read it in preparation for our service. So let's reread it together as a church. Verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance, when there are only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it. And they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do not do my prophets no harm. Verse 16. And he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. Verse 25. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their water into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and gnats in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their hand. He struck down their vines also in their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, and young locusts, even without number, and ate up all vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He also struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their vigor. Then he brought them out with silver and gold, and among his tribes there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for they dread of them had, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to illumine the night by night. They asked that he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them also the lands of the nations, that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor, that they might, might keep his statutes and observe his law. Praise the Lord. First Baptist Church of Greg Abel, you thankful for the word of God tonight? Amen. Brother Richard, you come and preach this word to his name. Good evening, church. Well, as you can see, Psalm 105 is lengthy. We've got a lot to cover tonight. So y'all ready to dive into this? 
Good, we're going to be moving at a pretty good clip. <laughs> but, so, the Psalm 105 that we just read is a historical psalm that gives account of God's faithfulness and his dealings with his people. Now, as Pastor Cody just read, you no doubt picked up on several familiar stories from the Old Testament. The psalmist mentions God's covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he mentions God's dealings with Joseph, Moses, and he even mentions the promised land. And all of this points to a theme that can be seen within this psalm, and this theme is God's glory in his holy name and the good and blessedness of his church. So as we look at this psalm tonight, keep that theme in the backdrop of your mind, because I hope to draw out for you how God is glorified and how he sovereignly deals with his chosen people and how what he does for them is for their ultimate good and ours. See, everything we see tonight isn't just for the good of the Old Testament saints, it's for our good as well. And also coupled with this theme of God's glory and our good, this psalm should also serve as a stimulant to worship him. As we look back on God's faithful dealings with his people and the amazing applications for us today, it should drive us to worship him for his wonder and his majesty. So let's begin with the first way that we can be stimulated to the worship of God by looking at verses 1 through 6 and examine the stimulating elements of the precepts of God. And there are seven precepts here, commands, given in these first six verses. And the first precept or command that we see in verse 1 is the command to give thanks. Verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. So in giving thanks, giving thanks, this seems to be a no-brainer. Everyone knows that we should be thankful to God. And everyone knows how to be thankful to God, especially in the good times. It's very easy to praise God when we're walking high up on the mountain. But in Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, we see something else concerning his command to give thanks. There we read, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father, Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So here we have the commands in this in Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit, which is to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, to be filled with the Word of God, to speak to each other in spiritual songs, to make melody in your heart to God, and then to do what? It says to give thanks. But to give thanks for what? It says all things. Well, all things. Well, that now that includes good and bad situations, correct? See, already we see the theme of this psalm coming forward, for which is God's glory and our good. So when we praise God in the bad times, it is then, and are still thankful to him for his grace and his goodness, it is then that he receives great glory as others see the testimony of our lives as we trust God in difficulty, knowing that ultimately what he is doing for us is for our good, even if we yet don't see it. It's trusting in him during the difficult times. That reminded of Psalm 23, and it's interesting that we actually sung a song with, with this particular part of the verse in the song this morning, but particularly the portion of Psalm 23 that says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, it's in the lowest of valleys that we feel the presence of the shepherd more sharply as he guides us to the other side. His guiding presence is definitely a cause to give thanks. So when we give thanks, when you look at this precept where we're obedient to that command, it should stimulate you to worship, knowing that he is always with you, even in the good and the bad times. So the second precept we see after give thanks is also in verse 1, and it says to call upon his name. 
or simply prayer. We call upon his name through prayer. And when thinking about prayer, my mind immediately went to Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that states, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Now that simply says it all. You take everything to God in prayer, trust Him with it, and He gives you peace over it. God will literally guard your heart with his peace. This element of the Christian life is one of the most neglected in our day, in my opinion, because we have a difficult time remembering to be a people of prayer. But outside of taking of the Lord's Supper, prayer is one of the most intimate forms of worship. You're one-on-one with God. You're praising him during prayer. You petition him for your needs during prayer. And you're being comforted by him when you come before the throne of grace. If God's people return to this command and be habitually obedient to it, I believe our individual worship of him will be that much more sweet. And I told you we're going to be moving at a clip. So we've seen we give thanks, we see we're to pray, and now we're told that we're to speak about God. And that is verse uh, 1 as well. It says, Make known his deeds among the peoples and speak of all his wonders. Now our psalmist here, he obeys this command throughout this psalm because in the majority of this text, he is recounting many of God's wonderful works of the past. And yes, we can do that as well. We can tell others about the wonderful works of God as he has done. But for us in New Testament times, the primary application for us today concerning speaking about the truths of God is to speak to others about speak to others by being obedient to the command of the Great Commission found in Matthew 28. And we're all familiar with the verse, but it says, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. The greatest way that we can tell of his wondrous works and his remarkable deeds is to tell others about the saving work of Jesus Christ for undeserving sinners such as ourselves. We preach the gospel. And let me tell you, the more you speak about the work of Christ, the more you are drawn to worship. See, right now we're taking the youth through a series called the Ten Gospel Truths. And so far we have covered truths uh, like God is the sovereign creator of all things, God created people for his own glory, God is holy and righteous, man is sinful, God is just and right to punish sin, and God is merciful to unforgiven sinners. And Corey and I alternate teaching every other week, so every other week is my turn to teach one of these truths to these kids, and let me tell you, each time that I get to do it, I'm a little more excited than I was the time before in the previous week, because when we explain these things to these kids, these gospel truths, at the end it culminates in the gospel being clearly told to them in the hope that God will be pleased to save one of them. And Corey does the same thing as well. After he gets done teaching, ending every session with a call to obey the gospel. And I'm sure I can speak for Corey here. He desires the same thing I do every time he takes the podium. That God would be pleased to save one of our youth as his truth is being proclaimed to them. And the more as I study and prepare for this every week, every other week, and the more I dwell on and think and pray over the truth of the gospel, the more I find myself in an attitude of worship in my own bedroom as I study. Preach the gospel. Speak about the wonderful works of Christ. Tell others about Jesus, and it will drive you to an attitude of worship. You can't help but. Now, precept number four, after give thanks, pray, and speaking about God, we are to 
sing praises to God. And I think Cody spoke about this last week, and he mentioned that this is the most often repeated command in all of Scripture. Now, I've got a little ESV app on my phone, you got an ESV Bible app. So I just did a simple search of the word sing, and it gave me 101 results of just that word. Now, I'm sure there's far more results or it's far more times the Bible talks about singing to God than 101 times. But I just want to give you that to you because the point is, God wants us to worship Him through song. But I think this may be one of the most difficult for some, for most people. Um, I've heard many excuses over the years of why folks don't sing, ranging from I'm too embarrassed to do it, or I sound like a dying cat. For me, I sound like a dying cat with a baritone or a bass voice. <laughs> so I get it, and I've used a lot of the same excuses. Because um, there are several church folks in this church who are blessed with the ability to sing like a dove, but I am not one of them, and I never will be. So, to combat this, years ago I began sitting on the front row of it. Um, and the reason I did that is because I was always self-conscious and terrified when I'm standing behind somebody and singing that they're going to hear me sing. So, sitting on the front row, the only people that were in front of me at the time were Brock Lee and Melody when she used to play an instrument before she sang up here. And I figured it's loud enough with all the orchestra and everything that they can't hear me and I can get over this fear of singing and actually obey the command to sing. And it worked. Now I really don't care who can sing, who hears me sing, but that might also be because I'm getting older as well. As you get older, you kind of tend to quit caring about what people think. <laughs> so, so as I sit back there and sing, it's and I don't really care who hears me, it's probably much to the chagrin of those around me because I see heads turn and bodies switch. And even my wife does this, and that's cool, it's fine. <laughs> but seriously, all joking aside, we're commanded to do this. And try to remember this when you're here if you suffer the way I do. You're not here to impress anyone. You're here to praise and worship the Savior. You are singing to an audience of one. So if you got to, close your eyes, if you know the words, close your eyes, block out the distraction, and just praise your God. Singing praise God, and not just here, but every day of it. And it'll drive you to worship. Number five, or number next, is glory in His name. We see that in verse three of our text, where it says glory in His holy name. And every time I hear the word glory, or in the context of giving glory to God, I think about an explanation I heard once about what it means to give glory to God. And oftentimes I think people can get a little confused about how to do that or even what that means. So in case you're one of those folks, a good thing to remember is to give God glory is in a sense to give God credit. To give God glory is to give Him the credit that is due His name for everything He has done for the grace given to us moment by moment with every heartbeat to the very salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 speaks to this very thing when it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in this, these things, declares the Lord. We have no right to boast in anything because everything we have, including our own abilities, has been given to us by God, and without Him, we would have none of it. So the best thing for us to do is to give Him credit for all of it, and boast or glory in the only thing that we're allowed to boast in, the fact that by God's grace, we are in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if we can keep that in the forefront of our, our minds, that every good gift comes down from the Father of light, 
will find ourselves giving praise and worship to God throughout each and every day if we can have that, uh, that continual focus. Number six, moving along, seek the Lord. Verse four, it says, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face continually. So Matthew 6, is where my mind went with this. We're given the command to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The context here in that passage in Matthew, and we're all familiar with it, concerns having worry or concern about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, etc. But Jesus is telling us not to worry because if God will take care of the sparrows, how much more will he take care of his people? See, following this command is ultimately for our good because it's designed to give us comfort, and let's face it, we're all worry works. I'm the worst. I'm actually kind of a control freak, honestly. I worry over like the minute details. And you ever notice how... I was, well, maybe it's not happening to you, it's happening to me. You ever have noticed how with one of your kids, God will give your kid one of your traits, and then you see that trait in your kid and it drives you nuts? See, God's done that with Brock. For me, he worries and wants to be super responsible with the little minute details that nobody really cares about, and I do the same thing, and he drives me crazy with it. God's not without a sense of humor. <clears throat> and I can't imagine what I do to some of you people, so let me publicly apologize if I drive you nuts in that way. Probably the youth council feels that more than anybody else. But, as we make a habit of being kingdom-minded by setting our minds on Christ, our worries will be calm because we will begin to remember God's enduring faithfulness and His covenant promises as seen throughout the pages of Scripture. And keep in mind, too, this command is to seek God continually. It's not just here and there, but always. A continual focus upon the heavenly things will bring your anxiety and worry over the temporal and physical concerns of this world much, much lower. And finally, precept number seven, but not finally for the sermon. I'm sorry, we got a lot more to go. But finally, precept number seven, man number seven in verse five is to remember him. Remember his wonders, which he has done, his marvels and the judgments, marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. And this may be the greatest stimulant to worship and possibly the most neglected other than prayer. Because I think people don't spend a lot of time meditating on what God has done. But we're going to spend the remainder of our time doing this very thing because that's what the psalmist does from here on out to the end of the text is recall God's dealings with his people. And the psalmist begins by remembering God's promise. We see that in verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11 tell us this concerning God's promise. He is our Lord, our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statue to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. So in these verses, we see the psalmist speaking about the covenant that God made with Abraham, that was given to oath to Isaac, and then confirmed to Jacob. Now, a covenant is an agreement between two or more people. In the Old Testament days, the way a covenant was made was the two parties would come to terms on the conditions of the covenant. So party A would be responsible to do A, B, and C, and party B would be responsible for X, Y, and Z. And once the terms of the covenant or the agreement was uh, agreed upon, it was then important to ratify the covenant, and the way they would do that is to take three animals, usually a heifer, a goat, and a ram, they would split them in two, and lay, them ha lay each half across from one another with a space between them. Then the two parties would then pass between the cut halves together, pledging to one another that if one of them broke the covenant, they would become like the two animal, like the animal pieces. In other words, the covenant is unto death. That's the idea being given here. 
Well, in Genesis chapter 15, we see this very covenant practice being utilized by God with Abraham. There's no need to turn there. I'm going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase the story found there. But as we know, this chapter begins with Abraham having a vision of God, telling him he will have a great reward, and Abraham asking him how uh, God will do that since he has no heir. And God reassures Abraham that he will have an heir that will come from his own body, and it's then that God has Abraham go outside and look at the stars, and God tells Abraham that his descendants will be as numerable as the stars of heaven. And, of course, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then the Lord tells Abraham that he is going to give him a land to possess, and Abraham asked God this question. Well, Lord, how will I know that I will possess it? Abraham sincerely wanted to know how he wanted to know how God was going to, without a doubt, give him that land, as well as produce an heir for him that all his descendants would come from and who would inherit that land. How are you going to make this happen? How will I know this will come to that? So that's where we see this covenant practice come into play. God has Abraham go and get the required animal has them cut them in half, sacrifice them and cut them in half, place them both halves across from one another. But God does something different here. Instead of both he and Abraham passing between the pieces to ratify the covenant, God causes Abraham to fall asleep. And God himself passes between the pieces alone, thus putting all the conditions of the covenant coming to pass on himself and himself alone. Abraham was not responsible for causing any of this to come to pass. God alone was responsible for giving him an heir and his numerous descendants in the very land that they would dwell in, Canaan. God was responsible for that. Everything rested on his shoulders. So what does this have to do with any of us? How's this for Abraham's good and ours? Well, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, you can turn there if you like, but it's probably going to be on the screen. It says this, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant, Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not see he does not say seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed that is Christ. What I'm saying is this the law which came four hundred and thirty years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. If you look over verse 29, it reads, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. The covenant that God made with Abraham is still in effect today. Notice that the text said that the covenant was previously what? Ratified by God. And how was it ratified? When God passed between the pieces alone. But the covenant was not nullified when the law came because the covenant was based upon the promise of God given to Abraham. And as we can see, that promise included a numerous descendants, and among those descendants was Jesus Christ, who according to verse 29, if we are believers in him, we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, and the promise that was made to him involves us, including the inheritance of the promised land. You may be asking, but the promised land was given to the nation of Israel. They said that a long time ago. How does that work for us? Well, glad you're Hebrews 11, 9, and 10 gives us the answer. We read there, it says, By faith he, Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Jump to verse 16, and it says, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Kind of goes along with what we were talking about this morning, with God, with Christ going ahead of us, preparing a place for us. God has prepared a city for them, and Christ is preparing a place for us in that city. 
Anyway, but the land of Canaan wasn't finally wasn't the final promised land that was promised to Abraham. The fulfillment of that promise is a heavenly city that God promised to Abraham and Abraham and all his descendants. And what do we read back in Galatians three? That we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. That means that the covenant promise of God made to Abraham that he ratified with himself alone, the Father's fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and includes the heavenly promised land. That covenant is still in force today and applies to each one of us. So the answer to the question that was that Abraham asked is the same answer for us. How will we know that we will possess it? Because the only way that we wouldn't is for God to break his covenant, and the only way he could do that is if he was to die, become as the pieces he passed between. It's impossible for the covenant promise that God made to Abraham to not come to pass. And what an amazing thing to ponder upon if we remember the wondrous works of God. That's why he's calling us to remember as a stimulant to worship. Because if you really want to be stimulated to worship, just take the time to look back and remember and reflect upon and meditate on the covenant promise of God because those covenant promises are unbreakable. So, that was one of the long ones. <laughs> but we're moving now from God's, remembering God's promise to remembering God's protection. And that's in verses 12 through 15. I'm not going to reread these. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here because we've seen this particular element in a lot of the other psalms that we've dealt with. But God protects his people. We understand this. And in these verses, we see God protecting Abraham and his descendants while they were small in number. He protects even to the point of rebuking kings as he did with Pharaoh when he took Sarah to be his wife after Abraham lied about him being a sister. Uh, and God did this in order to keep the covenant. If Abraham was to have a descendant more from his own line with Sarah and Sarah was with Pharaoh, that's not going to happen. So God would have laying on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gave her back, and I would have too. Um, <laughs> and a few weeks ago, when I spoke in Psalm 91, we talked about how God, even in protecting other people, gives charge to his angels to protect his, his own people. And we can take comfort knowing that God will not allow anything to happen to us unless he has a purpose for it. That's the ultimate thing. And it goes directly with the theme of this psalm as we look back to the past and see how God is glorified and how he's protected his people. We can then apply it to our lives now, knowing that since God is unchanging in his character, if he protected his people then, then he's going to protect his people now. And it's for our good and his glory. So we've seen God's promise, his protection, and now let's move on to his providence, which is verses 16 through 24. And I will read those. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. It says, And he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in iron until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the rulers of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. And Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. Now it's important in this section to remember the theme of the text, which is God's glory in his name and the good and blessedness of his church. Because if there's a section of this text that screams that theme, it's this portion here, because this isn't just providence we see here, it's difficult providences of God that result in the good of his people both then and now. And of course what we have in this section is the narrative concerning Joseph. And I want you to notice something here at the onset of this section, in verse 16 and 17 state that he called for a famine, he broke the staff of bread, he sent a man before them. Who's the he? It's God. God caused the famine. 
God broke the staff of bread, and God sent Joseph ahead of it all through what means? Slavery. So let's think about this for a moment. It was no easy, easy path getting up to this point for Joseph. Our text picks up in Psalm 105 with him being a slave. That's where we pick up, pick it up. But as we all know, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son because he was the son of his beloved Rachel. And Jacob displayed this fact by giving Joseph that coat of many colors. Uh, couple that with the fact that Joseph also had a couple of dreams that uh, seemed to suggest that his family would one day bow down to him and his family didn't really uh, like that too much, especially his brothers. Because of that, they hated him greatly. So one day while his brothers were out, Jacob uh, sent Joseph to check on him and what did his brothers do? They stripped him, they beat him, they threw him in a pit. Then they sold him into slavery. And then they lied to Jacob about him being killed by a wild animal. And this is the means by which our text tells us that God sent Joseph ahead of the family. We'll talk about difficult providence. Next time you think you're having a bad day, think about Joseph, and in comparison, it'll probably be anything so bad. But we can learn something from Joseph about how to deal with difficult providence from God. Because I believe that even though Joseph found himself in difficult situations, and I'm sure at times not even quite understanding the rhyme or the reason as to why, I don't think his faith in God ever wanes. The reason I say that is because after his brother sold him into slavery, he found himself a slave in Potiphar's house. And in Genesis 39.3, the Bible tells us that Potiphar noticed that the Lord was with Joseph. And because of God's hand being upon him, it seemed like Joseph, everything he touched, essentially turned to gold. So what did Potiphar do? He put Joseph in charge of his entire estate. The only thing Potiphar concerned himself with was what he ate. Everything else was in Joseph's care. Then after Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph trying to rape her because he actually had integrity and spurned her examples. He then finds himself in prison, and the head prison guard, what? He also noticed that the Lord was with Joseph and put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. And then later in the narrative, when we get to the part where Joseph was called in before Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, what did Pharaoh notice about Joseph? That the Lord was upon him, and so much so that Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of everything within the kingdom. Only Pharaoh had authority over Joseph. During all these difficult situations he found himself in, which, by the way, God placed him in according to the text, but during all of this, the witness of his life was so profoundly absorbed in his God that all that came into contact with, contact with him noticed it. Now, providentially, I stumbled across a, a, a quote by H.B. Charles Jr. recently about Joseph, and it reads, and I quote, Joseph did not endure the pit, Potiphar's house, and prison because he knew that he would end up in Pharaoh's palace. He simply remained faithful where he found himself. God did the rest. In Joseph, we see James 1 and Romans 8, 28 on display. Considering it joy to find ourselves in trials and recognizing that they are for our good and God's glory. And even more amazing is what Joseph says toward the end of, the end of Genesis 15. You probably know where I'm going. Throughout all of this, Joseph continued to trust God. And eventually that trust resulted in him being reunited with his father and his brother. But when we get to Genesis 50, we see where Jacob, who was Israel at this point, he was renamed, we see where he died. And after they had buried him, where Joseph's brothers buried him, Joseph's brothers were now afraid of Joseph because they thought that perhaps the only reason Joseph was dealing kindly with them was because of their father. So what does the brothers do? They went to Joseph, they bowed before him, and they told him they were his servants kind of remind you of a dream he had previously, correct? And they did this after sending a message ahead of them begging him for forgiveness. And it was at this moment that Joseph uttered those famous words, 
You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. All of it. The beating, the slavery, the imprisonment, years of struggle and turmoil culminated in the present result that many people will be preserved alive, namely his family. Now, this has implications for us as well. This doesn't just involve Joseph, it involves us. Because it actually directly affects us because you remember the covenant that God made with Abraham that we talked about earlier. All of this took place in order to keep that covenant promise that Abraham's descendants would be innumerable and from his seed, Christ, all the nations would be blessed. Because in verse 24 we read that God caused his people to be very fruitful and they became stronger than their adversaries. Who caused them to be fruitful? God did. This is where the nation of Israel began to expand and began to grow. And way further down the line, we learned that they eventually split, split and you had the two kingdoms, the southern and the northern kingdom. So as Body Bauckham once pointed out, the primary reason that God sent Joseph ahead of the famine was to preserve the southern kingdom of Judah so that the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, could come on the scene to purchase the redemption of his people. God, once again, bringing glory to his name through difficult providences while bringing about the good and the blessings of his church, and you are a direct result of that if you're in Jesus Christ. All this leads to you eventually. So we've seen God's promise, his protection, his providence. Now let's look at his punishment in verses 25 through 36. And here in these verses, we see the recount of the plague, the plagues that God put upon uh, the Egyptians. And that was God's punishment upon the Egyptians for their treatment of God's people and the refusal to release them. Interesting thing to note here, God hardened the heart of the Egyptians to enslave the Israelites as we've seen in verse 25. It says there, He turned their heart to hate His people and to deal craftily with His servants. Again, who's the He? God. God turned their heart. Now this goes along with the difficult providences as I spoke before, but also with the punishment. It kind of bridges the two. But sometimes God, in order to accomplish His purposes and bring glory to His name, he will further harden the hearts of men. Now, what do I mean by he will further harden the hearts of men? Well, man is already born with a hard and rebellious heart of stone. But it's only by God's common grace that we're, in our, we're not as bad as we could be, right? There are times, though, where God will remove the restraint of his grace and harden a man further to accomplish his purpose. It's not that the God is causing the man to sin. God is just removing his grace from the man and he goes deeper into sin. That's the idea being given here. And we see this in verses 26 and 36. God, after turning the hearts or further hardening the hearts of the Egyptians against his people, he then glorified himself through the leadership of Aaron and Moses and the use of plagues to free his people. Again, our theme shines through. God glorified himself through the punishment of the Egyptians, and he did it for the good of his chosen people, and ultimately ours, as we learned from Galatians 3 and other passages earlier. And then after God's punishment, as they entered into the uh, wilderness, we now see God's provision in verses 37 to 44 and again for time I'm not going to read that whole thing but in verses 37 and 38 we read this and he brought them out of, out with silver and gold and among his tribes there was no one who stumbled Egypt was glad when they departed for the dread of them had fallen upon them so after the final plague the uh, the killing of the firstborn it was then that the Egyptians Pharaoh and the Egyptians were like get out <laughs> go we've had enough and sent them out and God gave them all the uh, silver and gold. Now, straight away, I have to say that the psalmist is being somewhat kind here to the Egyptians, because it just says he turned them loose. What he doesn't mention is that Pharaoh changed his mind, chased them down, parting the Red Sea, the sea engulfing them, they all dying. That's not mentioned here, but what we do see is God's providence. He provided them with the silver and gold of the Egyptians. 
He provided for their financial needs, basically. He gave them their riches. Um, and then from verses 39 through 44, as they're in the wilderness, we see God's provision for them physically uh, because he gave them protection by the way of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gave them water, he gave them food. It mentions all that in this particular section. And just like the psalmist was kind to the Egyptians, he's also kind to the Israelites here because he doesn't mention all their complaining and griping and all that stuff that came between all the provisions. He just mentions that God took care of them. And this goes hand in hand with one of our precepts from earlier, which is seek the Lord. Just as we can look back and see God provide for his people then, in the wilderness, he will provide for us now. And recently God did this for us with Tinley. Uh, this is a simple example, but it matches what we're talking about. Tinley's going to start school here in the fall. We got another one going into the kindergarten. And so uh, we were a little bit worried about how we're going to get clothes for her because she needs the whole gambit. Now, me personally, I don't understand why she needs the whole gamut because I walk in the closet and look at it. There's 9,000 clothes. Why does she need more clothes? But whatever. My wife says she needs more clothes. She needs more clothes. We're going to go with it. But the day that we talked about it, we were a little bit concerned. How are we going to get the money to buy all this stuff? Because money's kind of tight. I got four kids. I, I have the money. Anyway, Crystal goes to work, and one of the ladies she works with just brings a bag of clothes, gives it to Crystal for Tinley. Crystal brings it home. Most of them still have the tags on them. They're brand spanking new. They fit her to a T. And now she got clothes for school, including shoes. She got everything she needed. If God will provide for the sparrow and clothe the lily of the field, how much more will we take care of? God provides. He provides for his people. And if we look back and remember those provisions, years from now, I'll look back and remember that, and it will drive me to worship. That's and finally, and this is the real finally, and I know I've been running. And finally, in verse 45, we see that we need to remember God's purpose for all of us. It says, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws, praise the Lord. The purpose for remembering God's marvelous work and his deeds is obedience. It's obedience. For Robert text in Titus 2, 11 and 12, we read, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So when we keep God's statutes and obey His law, we meditate on His Word daily, or meditate on His Word day and night, we inevitably begin to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and ultimately we begin to desire to pursue holiness and to be conformed to the image of Christ which in turn causes us to be more thankful, to call upon him more in prayer, to preach the gospel, to sing praises to him, to seek after his kingdom, to glorify and to glorify him with our lives, because as we observe his statutes and obey his laws, not out of compulsion, but out of our love for him for what he's done for us, we can't help but remember and recall his marvelous work, especially his redemption for us through Christ. And this will drive you worship. You can't help but. So I have to close this and ask you these questions. And as I ask you these questions, I want you to understand the questions I'm asking you, I ask myself. I do none of this perfectly. I'm speaking to you as a hypocrite today. I want you to understand that. I'm not pre trying to preach to you this sign. I sound like I keep all this perfectly. And I'm sure Cody and Justin, anybody else stands up here will say the same thing. We don't keep it perfectly, but it's for you and it's for me. I'm preaching myself here and I'm asking myself the same question. But the questions are this. Are you stimulated to worship? 
Are you being obedient to the command that we have discussed tonight? Are you thankful? Are you prayerful? Do you sing to Him? Are you kingdom-minded? Do you preach the gospel? See, I think we often get it backwards. We come to church on Sunday to worship God, and that's rightfully so. But I fear we think this is the primary time to worship Him. But Sundays are for corporate worship gifts. And the worship of God done here on Sunday should be an overflow of the worship that you and I should be doing individually all week long. My question for you is, are you being stimulated to worship as you seek the Lord every day through His Word, prayer, preaching the gospel, and everything we talk about? Let's all stand and we'll pray. Well, we ain't got to stand. We don't do that at night. Let's pop away. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. And Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach. And Lord, I just ask that for me as well, and most importantly, that you'll help me to daily be stimulated to worship, to study the word, to singing praise to your name. Father, for preaching the gospel, being obedient to what you have commanded us to do so that we can remember you and remember what you've done for us, especially in the work of Christ. Father, be with us now. And Father, as we leave here, may we be uh, mouthpieces for you, and may we leave here wanting to be more obedient to you, so we can be more conformed to the image of Christ. And that's the first thing we have to Amen.